Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. This is your host, Yavitz Jurjevic. And today I've got Brian Adams with me. He is the principal and co-founder of Excelsior Capital here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we had us a fun conversation. Uh, covered a lot of different topics from entrepreneurism and the, the dark days of being self-employed and starting something from the ground up uh, and how nobody really wants to talk about that, all the way to the reality check necessary to see hey, you know, where am I today and what advantages have I had in life that got me to that point and what have I um, succeeded on just based on my skill set and, and really having that self-realization and personal growth. Uh, conversation was awesome. Went an hour and 20 minutes, so obviously we had a good time. As always, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Hit subscribe. It helps a lot with the algorithm. Share the episode with everyone you know on your social media, etc. Uh, also, there is now a YouTube channel where small clips and um, maybe topics and things that I want to cover that can't be articulated well enough via just audio will be on there. So that's Millennial Manhood Podcast on YouTube. Check it out. Subscribe to that, share it with your friends, and here's the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. I'm your host, Yavitz Djurjevic. Today, I've got Brian Adams with me. Um, Brian actually reached out to me via LinkedIn, and we connected and had a really fun conversation on the phone. So we decided, let's do a, let's do a podcast. So Brian, for the folks who, who don't know who you are, give us a 10,000-foot view. Yeah, happy to. Thanks again for having me on. Um... So I'm a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. I've been here about 15 years. I'm an attorney by training. And then my wife's family has a single family office that has been in the commercial real estate investing world for the last 25, 35 years. So I got into this business through my wife's family's connections with various sponsors and GPs and funds, et cetera. I connected with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl, and we started our business 10 years ago. And we can get into you know the nitty gritty of it, but essentially what we've been doing for the last 10 years is raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis to a network of high net worth individuals, families, independent RIAs. And we, for the most part, focus on commercial. So today we have about two and a half million square feet under management. That's across 12 markets. We actually don't own a lot in Nashville. And that equates to roughly $450 million portfolio of roughly, call it 35 assets. And um, we're mostly focused on stable cash flow, passive income for our investors, as well as a lot of the tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. So that's mm. who we are and what we do. You just mentioned my favorite words in, on God's green earth, passive cash flow. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's interesting. For a long time, we were focused on doing great deals and, you know, being very focused on kind of the sex appeal of what we were doing. But after talking to our investors and, and understanding what they wanted, it really came down to three things. And once we simplified those three things, our business got not easier, but much more scalable and repeatable because we had a product offering that we knew was was solving an issue and a pain point in the marketplace. And our marketplace are kind of our network of investors. And the pain point they had was a place to, to put capital that was uncorrelated to the markets or, or geopo geopolitical machinations. They wanted passive cash flow, just like you said. They were looking for yield. Um, they couldn't find it in fixed income. Corporate and private debt was looking pretty strained. And then 
you know, we we do as much as we can on the tax side because we only work with taxable investors. We don't have institutional investors. We don't have pension funds or endowments. So, you know, the net of fees and after tax returns is what our focus is. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful on, on so many fronts. And, and I've had this rant a million times on the podcast and you and I talked about it a little bit. You know, everybody is taught to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate when in reality, cash flow accumulation should be a byproduct of good cash flow. You know, you shouldn't sacrifice cash flow for accumulation when it comes to building wealth. Um, and I th- so you said something really interesting. So I'm curious on why this was. You said you were worried about the sex appeal up front and then you realized that you could solve a problem and maybe make it less sexy, which I would argue cash flow is the sexiest thing on earth (laughs) personally. Um, But I know it's not as cool as like, you know, building out a development and then, you know, selling off that development and making a couple mil. So why, why do you think you, why do you think two, two young guys at the time were worried about the sex appeal as they were starting out this business and then had to, had to transform it? Because we're both, you know, alpha males and it's an ego driven business. And I think oftentimes we see the allure of the developer and you see a bunch of zeros and you have an impulse to demonstrate your prowess and your business acumen by going, you know, bigger and better and bolder. And um, I didn't have the maturity to have the self-reflection to know that that was not my risk profile. And frankly, it wasn't the risk profile of my investors. you know, they went along because they trusted me and I had built that relationship, but, you know, they didn't really care about the IRR or the multiples. Um, they wanted, you know, passive cash flow and steady Eddie. But I think when you're in your mid to late 20s, you feel some kind of impulse to be a hero and go out there and take over the world. And you're constantly, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And when you see somebody else doing a big development deal or you hear about kind of this crazy multiple they got, especially in Nashville over the last 10 years, I mean, people have made some some big tickets. But the flip side of that is after being in this business for 10 years is you don't see the headlines about people that went BK or that had a permanent capital loss. Um, those stories don't get bandied about much. And uh, But once you talk to other sponsors and GPs and, and people in this business, you realize it happens a lot. And permanent loss of capital, I can tell you from our family's experience is um, exceedingly painful, not only from that obviously loss itself, but you know, if you lose X amount, the time and effort and energy gets back to not only win that back, but to take on the opportunity cost that you missed from putting it to work somewhere else it's pernicious. Yeah. It's so interesting what you said about being in your mid to late twenties and feeling like you need to be a hero. The way I've heard that described as young man idealism. And I think that's probably the most powerful phrase I've heard. I heard it from a priest once. And, um, it's also interesting. You you talk about, you want, you want the big zeros and the, you don't have to answer this question because I know it directly correlates probably some of your business dealings, not so much for me anymore, but I've not met a lot of developers that I like as human beings. I'm just going to throw that out there. Some of them, I mean, one of my good friends is, but most of them, they're so full of it and their egos are so massive at all times. And also, again, like you said, nobody talks about what happens on the downside. 
because pretty much every multifamily cash flow investor that I know survived 2008 with no problems. I mean, it sucked a little bit, but not it wasn't the end of the world because as long as you got strong cash flow, you can weather any storm. Your property values only matter if you're trying to sell. If you were stuck holding the bag with a bunch of developments, you did not. <laughs> I mean, we had a Lake Palmer, or whatever it's called here in Nashville for what, the last 12, 13 years where they're building that giant hotel and condo. I mean, that was a developer who couldn't finish the project. I don't, I don't remember if he went under or not, or if he restructured or what it was, but um, he sold it to a family out of Birmingham. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was an eyesore in Nashville for a decade. Yeah. Um, so, so there's, there's that whole world. And, and you and I talked about the whole ego aspect of it. And obviously with young men, why do you, I mean, why do you think it, that is, you talked about getting to the self-reflection point. And I would argue that a lot of people never get to that self-reflection point, which I think is somewhat depressing on that front, but I know it took me a long time to get to it. And it took a lot of failure and getting kicked in my face over and over again. Like, what was that story like and development like for you? Yeah, and, and that's the hero's journey, right? I mean, when you when you talk about being an entrepreneur, when you talk about just your life development, and and I don't think self reflection, there's no endpoint. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a, a a continuum. But you know, you start seeing archetypes mm -hmm. and themes play out over and over again, right? I mean, the hero has this great idea. He goes on this adventure. At some point, there's a failure or a challenge that he has to, you know, push through. There's usually a mentor involved mm -hmm. and some kind of rebirth or reimagining of what that adventure looks like. And then kind of that third chapter is that, you know, he's made it through this challenge and he is somehow or other reborn and a better version of himself. And I think, unfortunately, with our culture today, we only want chapters one and three. Mm. We don't want number the second chapter, which is you know the hardship, the anguish, getting your teeth kicked in, as you were talking about building up that scar tissue, whatever cliche you want to use. Um, it, it seems like we just want to progress directly to three, and and unfortunately, I don't think it's it's possible, at least not long term. Yeah. It's it's like that. It's like St. George slaying the dragon or leaving the Shire or whatever it may be. All these stories that keep popping up throughout history and humanity. Yeah, I've actually, this is the book. The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm, there you go. This is the book, Joseph Campbell. I mean, it's, it's the hero's journey and it's what, unfortunately, if you want to be an entrepreneur, at some point you have to go through that. And if you look at a lot of the really successful entrepreneurs, um, Unfortunately, the story is typically about what they're doing today and how great they're doing and, and how much money they're making, et cetera. But oftentimes that messy middle gets left out of the narrative, but that's usually where the magic happens. But our culture doesn't really want to embrace that. We just want to talk about how, how much money they made and, and how great it is now. But there's usually a very dark chapter in there at some point. Well, let's talk about that messy metal. So before we dive into the actual messy metal of, of your development, for folks who don't know much about your world, explain the way you would to like a fifth grader, what, what yeah. it is that you do. Keep it simple. Yeah. So I find a, I find a building that I think is an attractive investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. So like a, you're talking about like apartment buildings or maybe large scale 
um, you know, uh, like a mall or a hospital or something along those lines. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to get into the details, but sure, like a building, a commercial building. Yeah. That is an investment opportunity that for whatever reason I find attractive. Mm -hmm. So we find the opportunity typically through a broker, through some kind of intermediary that we know. We internally underwrite the deal. We discuss it internally. We spend, you know, diligence, time and effort. Once we think it passes the sniff test and passes all of our internal diligence, we would submit an offer on it. Once we submit an offer and we come to, to business terms with the seller so that the major kind of issues are taken care of and resolved, we, um, in commercial real estate parlance, we cowboy it. Okay. And we go out through what is now a fairly sophisticated process, but at the, at the beginning, it certainly wasn't. We have a network of about 6,000 individuals and families and, and private wealth management firms. We send it to all these folks and we raise capital around just that one opportunity. Mm. Um, so we don't have a fund. We certainly invest ourselves and our families, but you know we're going at risk and, and we hopefully can you know find enough interest and appetite amongst our investor base to invest on that opportunity and then we buy it the whole thing takes probably 100 days mm. so you're not are you guys ever financing any part of the deal or is it all so you are yeah okay. yeah we're taking debt you 65 to 75 percent debt so we're okay. doing 25 35 equity yeah so you're trying to leave for folks out there they're trying to leave a lot of meat on the bone just in case you know there is a 2008 type scenario, et cetera. Um, okay. So good explanation. So how do you, in your late twenties, you know, where most people are worried about going out to the bars and, uh, you know, uh, contributing, maybe they're contributing to their 401k if they're even remotely thinking about finance, how on earth do you end up in this business where you're out there not only looking for deals, but raising funds for the deals? Yeah. So let, let's kind of have, have a reality check. Cause that's kind of what this show is about in some ways, I think, which is, much needed in my opinion for, for those maybe who aren't being able to, to see it. And this is not a, uh, a, a statement <laughs> meant to, it's going to come across wrong, but I'm a decent looking white guy mm -hmm. who went to the right schools and, and married into a very affluent family. Mm -hmm. So my privilege level is like through the roof, right? Yeah. yeah. I can, I can get almost any meeting I want in town. I have a, just a network of people who happen to, to be high net worth individuals. Like mm -hmm. literally, you know, pre-COVID, we go to a cocktail party, we go to an event, we go on a trip where my kids go to school, where we go to our country club. Everyone's an accredited investor. Yep. Like that's not an issue. Yeah. And so that's kind of the preface, right? I mean, that's just being somewhat real. But then what happened was I was an attorney and I was a prosecutor, which is a great job, but doesn't make a lot of money. And um, I'll be honest, I didn't want to do that anymore. So I left, went to private practice. It was not a good situation. My One of my colleagues was having some emotional issues. And I real estate was kind of a side hustle at that point. And I remember it was master's weekend. It was Easter weekend. And my son was uh, two months old, my firstborn. He's seven now. And I remember just making a deal with myself that I was going to run with this real estate thing. 
starting mm. Monday. Wow. So it's kind of a burn the ships, cross the Rubicon, whatever you want to put out there moment for me where I decided, you know, I'm going to try to do this and see what happens. And I went all in and I just started having coffee with anybody that would meet with me, having phone calls. And luckily my partner is very finance oriented and is much more of a deal transactional person. But commercial real estate is a great business, but it's extremely capital intensive. And mm -hmm. so what I realized was nobody wanted to do the fundraising part of it. Mm. Even the older real estate guys hated the sales component. They hated the marketing component. That's the most fun part. Yeah, not for everybody. <laughs> and I just kind of embraced that, right? I said, I'm going to do this. This is going to be my personality. And I'm I'm going to go out there and make the ask and get a lot of no's. Yep. And that has evolved into, you know, I have got 550 some odd investors now. Probably 6,200 and... See what the updated number is. 6,279 contacts now. Boom. See, and that, um, yeah, here we are. That's such an interesting story to me on that front. So I love the reality check that you, that you gave because, you know, and, and I've, you probably know a, somewhat about it or, you know, we've talked about it, you know, being an immigrant coming to America. Being 10 years old, not only being an immigrant, I always joke and I say we were refugees. We're like the lowest kind of immigrant. Um, <laughs> we're the immigrants that immigrants don't like. Um, I remember I was, I guess, 10 or 11. My dad sat me down and he was like, listen, kid, I don't have anything to give you here at all. Um, nobody cares about me. I'm an educated man. It doesn't matter. I'm working an entry level job. Uh, your mom and I sacrifice everything to bring you here. What you, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. And that's okay. That's just, I, I can't give you anything else besides my support and, and, and the wisdom that I learned that I've learned over the year, but years, but what you do will decide the next 10 generations of our family's existence in this country. And that always stuck with me from a very, very early age. So I never saw, you know, I, I think part of what even the word privilege, quote unquote, the reason it's such almost a trigger word is because people view it as like, oh, you're saying I've had an unfair advantage. No, I'm saying you've had an advantage and that's okay. I'm trying to create an advantage for my kids. Yeah. And I, and I think that, so that's really, so that's super important, right? And that's very difficult to grapple with because, so for context, my business partner, like my ride or die, this guy and I have been through a lot together. He's, he's Indian. He, he moved here when he was 10, 11. His dad is a professor. Um, he's a U.S. citizen, super smart, Cornell, NYU law, the whole deal. But like he's what in the Indian community, he's what he's called like sometimes ABCD. He's American, but confused Indian because <laughs> he, married an, he married a woman who's Indian. And, you know, very much part of that community but he's also just a dude from Long Island. Yeah. And and so it's super interesting to, to be in business with him for the past 10 years. But that's exactly, and we talk about this a lot, right? Because he went to public school, he went to Cornell um, undergrad through a in-state tuition program. He graduated in three years. Wow. And so a lot of what he talks about is like, I want an unfair advantage for my kids. That's yes. what I want. Yes. That's why I work so hard. That's why I send them to these incredible schools. That's why I make sure they go to the right summer camp. That's why, 
all these extracurriculars we do. That's why I want to join this organization or this club. And, you know, my both sides of my family have been here for a long time. We take it for granted, right? Um, like I go to New York or walk around Midtown or go to Boston and I just like know people. How? Who knows? Right? Like I played the cross in college. I went to this prep school. But and that's what's very difficult for me to grapple with is I want my children to, to work hard, not be jerks, understand that they have this immense privilege that they're in like this 1% of the 1% of the world. But at the same time, I don't want them to have this horrible life. Yeah. Well, and you don't want them hating themselves either. Right. I, I, right. Think, that, I think part of the extremes in the conversation, why it becomes a trigger where, again, there's extremes in everything. Um, I think part of the extremes and just conversations is there is that faction of people who, yeah, if you had any sort of privilege in life, you should hate yourself. And it's like, no, that's, that's not reality. That's not true. And, and the way that I put, put it to my boys is, you know, we have privilege and with that privilege comes a responsibility to try to help other people and be empathetic. Correct. And unfortunately, I think the narrative in this country today oftentimes is, a population has has built up this power base and they've built a moat around it and they don't want anybody coming over the moat because they think of it as a zero sum game and that if they take if they give away part of the pie it'll never come back to them and we what we try to have in my family is much more of a rising ship mentality where yes you know if we help other people and we let other people be successful it's just going to be better for everybody right you can use karma or whatever analogy you want to use but that's how I try to put it to them is we have a responsibility given our platform to help other people raise other people's voices, talk about things that are maybe difficult because we have a platform to do that. And so that's how I try to kind of spin this concept, but it is a difficult one to, to talk through. Well, and the whole, okay, building a moat, let's talk about a population building a moat and trying to keep certain groups and people, which historically, I mean, specifically, again, as somebody who was not born in the United States. I, I do consider myself an American very much so. Married an American girl, lived here since I was 10. But the first time I had to explain Jim Crow to my parents, their minds melted. My dad was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me during my lifetime, <laughs> I could not have gone to school with black kids. I was like, yes. And dad, I don't really know where you would have gone to school in the South. I mean, like, I don't know where you fit into this equation. Even though you're a white guy, you're still, I mean, you're too exotic. You're too exotic of a white guy. Um, yeah, there, there's, there is a historical issue that needs to be addressed. But the idea of, and I hate this idea of building the moat and not letting people in. To me, that's the most un-American idea on earth. the The true concept of the American dream is that rising tide lifts all boats. The fact that the pie can be made bigger. Okay, and when the smartest, brightest most talented people leave their countries from all over the world to come to this place where there's opportunity. That's us all combined, everybody making the pie bigger. And I do think we have a responsibility in general, no matter what society, no matter what group you come from or what your background is or, or whatever it may be. If you have a skill set or a talent that you have gotten, that is a gift to you. What, you know, that's a, that, from a religious standpoint, it's a gift from God what you do with those talents is a gift to God or should be a gift to God. Go out there and, and, and leave this place a little bit better than you found. And, um, you know, again, kind of back to that whole arrogance thing with, with some of the people in, in certain industries, it's like, okay, bro, 
like congratulations you're 26 and you built a bunch of crap uh it's really easy when your dad's funding you like it's not rocket science you give me a couple mil i'll go do it too i, f- I firmly believe that the 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 skill set comes into play of what you said let me go find the deals <laughs> let me go find the people um so sorry i just ranted but man I'm no it's going i think i think it this moat concept is a good metaphor because it comes from a place of fear mm, yep and it's scary right i mean if you had built up a niche power base within your community over hundreds of years and you feel like other people are coming to take away that that power or that affluence it is really scary um and that's where having a rich diverse community around you i think makes a big difference because you can hear other people's stories like yours i mean i always tell this story i think anecdotes are powerful narratives are powerful when you're talking about this kind of stuff i mean we used to take 100 to 150 flights a year my partner and i mm. You're looking for deals, talking to investors. I mean, road warriors. Yeah. And I mean, out of on a typical year, maybe I got extra screening once. Hmm. Dude, my partner would get it. We ran the numbers. It was like 25% of the time. Interesting. And, you know, I kept at some, uh, and depending on like if I had been drinking or if it was late, you know, I talked to TSA and it's not their their fault, but I'm like, you're not running a straight algorithm, man. Like, yeah, this dude's brown. This is a microaggression. Yeah, and you're wearing him down. And P.S. He's he's Hindu. Yeah, and he's a he's from Long Island, man. Like, he's not he's not he's not who you're looking for. Yeah, and or you know you go to a meeting or a business breakfast, and somebody says a a, a Christian prayer before you eat. Mm. Like, do you know how insulting that is for this guy? Like, you want him to do a Hindu blessing before you eat too? How would you feel? It's very hard. And unfortunately, or fortunately maybe, as this millennial generation is the most diverse generation in American history, and the one after that will be more so and more so, white bros have to realize that they're not going to be the majority of this country any longer. And we need to make sure that it doesn't turn into even more fear. But as, as a U.S. citizen yourself, if you look at the government that represents you, do you think that rep- do you think that's a good reflection of the generation that you're a part of? If you look at the Senate, oh, a bunch no. of 65-year-old white dudes? No. And, and I mean, if you want to go down that route, it's, it's part of a club and I ain't in it. And they don't, and they don't want people like me in it. It's become a rich man's game. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, I've had, I've had certain conversations with, you know, when it comes to the interests of particularly Serbian Americans, uh, who are U S citizens who are successful. A lot of them are successful business people in this country. Um, the foreign policy of the United States has been incredibly historically. I mean, the only way to describe it is a systematic elimination of our people, um, for business interests of large corporations. And, you know, there needs to be, and there's going to be a, a rising up and a reckoning on that front because we're, we're starting to look at it and say like, Hey, we're American citizens. You're going to listen to us and our interests as well, because I'm tired of you starving my family, um, because of the business interests of some lobbying firm or, or whatever it may be. Um, 
so yeah, there's all kinds of stuff like that. And last time I checked, didn't we like throw a bunch of tea in the in, into into the ocean because of taxation without representation? You know how hard it is for me to get any representation. Not me, just in general, a normal person in D.C. You know, it's it's a if if my public schools suck, I'm paying property tax. If my public schools suck, I'm going to go to the local public school board meeting and I'm going to ask them why did the school suck. If I want to go talk to Senate, how much money do I need to spend? So there, I mean, there's a whole lot of just issues we can we can we can talk about on that front. Yeah, I mean, you've got to fundamentally question. So politics is one group's assertion of power over another. Correct. And you've got to really wonder in today's day and age why people are throwing up immense barriers to allowing people to vote. What are they afraid of? Yeah, it's it's a it's a power game. It's a power struggle. But but it's true. It's 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 an incredibly dirty, dirty game. It's not about. It should be about serving your community. It should be about. You shouldn't be going to D.C. to live there and make a forty-year career out of it. It should be about serving your community. It should be about serving the people. That that that's the American dream. Am, am I missing something? On on. Well, this this is really a conversation about campaign finance reform. Well, yes, we which can. Which is needed. <laughs> Which yeah, that's a whole nother animal. We're getting way away from um, office buildings here. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. We can talk about it. No, it's fine. Well, it, it's it's just so you know, having gone through, you know, this last campaign and the campaign before that and the campaign before that, it's just the the manipulation is just unbelievable on all fronts, and it's it's sad in a lot of ways because there's no, um, there in my opinion there is no true representation. Um, and and that breaks my heart because. I think America is important on the world stage because America is a beacon. If, if even if not in practice, ideally, the idea of America is important in the world. And if that idea erodes more and more, I'm scared to see where the world would go because I think people need that hope. Again, even if America doesn't practice everything that it stands for, just, just that concept, just that ethos being in existence is important in my opinion. And, and hopefully this is starting to trend, but there needs to be a conversation of, of what it means to be, to be of service to your country and to have a civic duty. And, you know, civics is the study of how, you know, the government interacts with its people, with the, with the, with its citizens. And it seems like for, a lot of America today, there is no true interaction. And it's very challenging when, you know, in order to be a senator, it's going to cost you about $5 million. To be a congressperson, it's going to cost you about $1 or $2 million. And when you have that kind of dynamic, it's hard to have a representational government and when you look at things as simple as the tax code and people, you know, rail against the tax code, well, look at the people who are putting it to work and look at the people who are legislating that set of incentives and disincentives. And for the most part, most of them are in private equity and commercial real estate. And so it's going to be a reflection of their personal biases. And bias is not on its own an evil thing. I think it's been cast 
as this negative connotation, but bias is just the experiences that we inherently have that we bring to the table into discourse. But there's no countervailing force against this, this conglomeration of, of power base. And so hopefully you're starting to see that change a little bit more, but it's also hard for me, you know, my wife's family has been here since the 17th century, same for my family. And America has been really good to us. And, and so it's very challenging to be truly empathetic um, when you don't necessarily bump elbows and t- sit down and talk to somebody who grew up in Serbia and has this whole different set of experiences and, and ideas about what America should be, right? Um, so I don't know if I'm answering your question. There's no easy answers here, but I think a start would be campaign finance reform. A start would be, you know, eliminating the electoral college. And a start would be having some kind of federal oversight over how states allow people to vote. See, I would, I would go down a different route. I think the biggest hindrance to any form of true democracy or even, even a representative government or republic the way we have it, anyway, any civic engagement between the government and its people is the two-party system. Um, if you believe there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans, I've got a bridge to sell you because it's the same people over and over and over and over again. They might have different small factions within those groups that they utilize to form coalitions. But at the end of the day, everything essentially stays the same. And as long as that power dynamic is there, you, you can't, I'm not saying we should go to a parliamentary government. I think parliamentary governments have all kinds of issues because you can have extremes get in. But yeah, if you get 3% of the vote and somebody needs your 3% to get to 51% to form a government, guess what you have? You've got leverage. Um, in, in the system that we have with these two parties, you have zero leverage at all times. Yeah, there's no incentive. I mean, if you look at, there's no incentive for either party to come to the middle or to have a coalition, right? I mean, they want to go to their power base and the goal is to maintain control. So this polarization, I think, is a natural outcome of this concept that they're that there's just a consolidation of power and there's no incentive to reach across the aisle. I mean, there really isn't. And, you know, I think ranked choice voting is a start. You know, they do it in California. They're doing it for the first time ever in New York city for the mayor's race. I think that is a a really nice way to hopefully turn down the volume, some of the vitriol that's happening and have some people understand that, you know, Building a coalition, a broad coalition, and not just crushing your adversaries can eventually help you be successful in politics. I think that's a start. Yeah, but again, part of the problem is let's let's go back to the types of people that end up in politics uh, or the people driving policy. Like you said, private equity and commercial real estate, right? If there is one way I could describe the majority of the people that I know in those worlds is crush your enemies. So like it's, it's, it's almost in their DNA on that front. Whereas I've never looked at business that way. Personally, I've never, it's, I've made jokes about, about like, I'm going to, I've got a hit list and I'm going to come after it. But in reality it's like, I don't care. There's more than enough business for everybody. 
in America, the, the pie really is big enough. You just got to find what the next piece of pie is. Um, so whereas again, the people that you're typically dealing with is you're either dealing with that or you're dealing with career politicians who's, who make their entire career, make 120 grand a year. So yet somehow magically are worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. Not a rocket scientist, but I know how to do basic math. So, so what's going on behind the scenes there? So, and when you think about it, just from a greater, think about this from a, just a greater, um, societal issue. We talked about the come to Jesus moment, essentially the getting kicked in the face and and the chapter two between one and three. If you're one of these politicians who has been in office for decades and just kept getting reelected, when do you have to have that come to Jesus moment? Because you're in some really red state or district or some really blue state or district, and you've got incumbent advantage and you've never actually ever been challenged for anything which is what a lot of these people are in. Yeah. Well, I mean, another conversation we need to have is to reverse the gerrymandering of electoral seats. That is the wildest thing I ever learned when I learned that I was like 16 <laughs> or 17. It's Ooh, some like, crazy what? shit, man. If you look at a map. Um, it's insane. Yeah, what, was, it's insane. what was the district here in Tennessee where it was like Williamson County to like the eastern suburbs of Memphis back in the day? It was just the wealthiest yeah. parts of the state connected via like this thin strip down I-40 for like three hours. Yeah, re- reversing gerrymandering would be, a, a, I think, would be a big game changer. And again, eliminating the Electoral College, I think, would also change the dynamic quite a bit. And compelling compelling people to vote. I think voting should be... Um, not voting should be a finable offense. So, so let me let me ask you this: I am not on. I am not one that's on to eliminate the, the electoral college um, campaign. So, and here's my reasoning behind it: I do like the idea of federalism and the ability of small states to have representation because the original idea of the United States was these states coming into a union and the federal government not basically being an overarching, you know, dominant entity. I get that. Uh, so, so the electoral college being basically a buffer against that. So 51% can't torture 49%, et cetera. Um, convince me otherwise. Why should the electoral college be eliminated? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at this pandering to the base of both parties and this continued polarization of their stances on things, I think it's a direct development of you know, this extreme social media experience we're all going through. And also politics have gotten to be a science and not an art. And I think it would help bridge the gap quite a bit if somebody like Biden needed to actually pay attention to what people in Tennessee thought. Yeah. I mean, how many times did he come to visit? Not at all. Why would he? Because it doesn't matter. But, but so I've heard that argument before, but wouldn't it just, wouldn't what happen if you eliminated the electoral college, let's say it was a pure, uh, popular vote. Wouldn't Biden just go to California and just drive up votes in California and Trump would have gone to Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, uh, you know, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, and just drove up to Texas and just drove, drove up the votes there and spent all their times there. Wouldn't it just flip to where the, the, the states that were important were just the most extreme states where you knew you could drive support. I don't know, but we should find out. <laughs> just, we just say, hey, 2024, getting rid of the Electoral College is a test. Well, I don't understand. When was the last time we had a constitutional amendment? 
we raised Congress's pay, I think, in the 90s. Yeah. What are we so afraid of? We've made the Constitution an idol, in my opinion, in a lot of ways. The Constitution was meant to be able to be malleable. But I think we've created such a massive... All right. Go to Alexander Hamilton in, in 1791 or whatever and explain to him what America becomes just from a pure sheer power. I mean, this tiny little group of colonies who the only reason they won the American Revolution is because India had a revolution in England and France got involved and England decided they needed more forces in, in India than they did in the United States. That's essentially what happened is France and Spain got involved, all this other stuff. Um, but the the U the colonies should have never won that war. There's like from a logical standpoint, they didn't have the infrastructure, they didn't have the logistics, they didn't have the army, they didn't have anything. It was basically luck. Explain to him that it becomes this juggernaut of society, this massive apparatus that is the 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 the, the engine of the world's economy, of innovation, of politics, of foreign policy, of everything. What would these people think about? what it becomes and what they envisioned. I mean, imagine explaining to him what an iPhone is. So, I mean, what you're talking about there is also potentially reimagining what the Supreme Court would look like, which I think is probably relevant today. Um, and there should probably be term limits. We should potentially look to expand the bench. These are challenging things to do and probably political suicide. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, I would love to see term limits just in general, uh, you know, across the board. But I think also, you know, it's also hard when people we're having this conversation and, and, and people look at how dysfunctional America is, especially international. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to get most of my domestic news from international sources. And it, it's, it, it's easy for a place like England to cast stones. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we have a 320 million person dynamic country. Yes. The biggest economy in the world. And it's an experiment pretty much every day. And it's hard, right? I mean, it's very challenging. We don't have a homogeneous culture. We don't have a homogeneous population. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying forgive us, but you've got to understand that um, it's a confusing place. Well, let's make something very clear. America as an experiment is a miracle. The fact that we've been together this long unbelievable i will take it a step further we don't have a homogeneous identity of what it is to be an american no we don't have just, that we don't have it's that a identity. place and an idea correct I, yeah. like let me break something down for you folks i lived in germany for seven years you know what i would never be accepted as if i'd continue living there a german you can't be a citizen you got you got Turkish immigrants who've been there for generations. They can't be citizens. Yeah, there's there's all kind. I mean, the whole you're a citizen because you're born there is a Western Hemisphere thing. In fairness, you're also dealing with identities that have existed for thousands of years. You know, go to Lebanon and explain to them that now you're going to be Lebanese. Good luck. You know, their their cities have been around long before America was even a, a, a smidgen of idea. Um, so it, it's yeah, it's an interesting experiment in society and. It's shocking that it survived. 
and it, and that's the challenge I think is if you if you live in a in a pretty close knit homogeneous community and you don't talk to people who grew up in Serbia or who grew up in India, yeah, and you don't travel to third world countries to see just how rough and brutal and dictatorial it is, or even you know my family came from Ireland at some point, you go over there. And it's great. It's fun, blah, blah, And you realize that the country of Ireland is still half the population size it was before great famine. the potato famine. Yeah. And you think, you're like, gosh, everybody left. How bad must it have been? And how much better was it somewhere else that these people never even thought about going back? Dude, that is the most... Could you imagine being an immigrant 160 years ago? How bad it must be. I was talking to my wife about this. You imagine how bad it would be for us to pick up sticks and move to some other place. But you talk to people like yourself or my partner and you're like, yeah, man, shit was bad. Like we had to leave and we took that risk and opportunity. I mean, I think it's very difficult for, for Americans who have been here for generations to understand and to be empathetic with how difficult it must be somewhere else for people to make that kind of move extremely hard conversation to have. I think about that all the time, like from a social engagement standpoint, when I think about getting involved in politics and, and things like that, one of the big things that I would love to impact from a foreign policy standpoint is all the, the part of the world where I'm from, all the countries of the former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia, Montenegro, et cetera. None of the young people want to stay there. Understandably. I would love to get involved in a sense to help those places economically through American foreign policy and European foreign policy and whoever to where every young person that's born there doesn't start looking at, Hey, what the hell is my way out? <laughs> as soon as they're a teenager, you know, cause I want there to be, because you need functioning places around the world. And, and you know, it, it just, it's a different, I guess, mindset on, on that front of how do you, how do you, how do you not only help people understand that we can grow the pie here, but also help people understand you can grow the pie in other places and help them grow that pie and then help people within America grow that pie? Um, I guess that's the name of the podcast, Grow the Pie. <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, but I don't, I don't know, like for you individually, so you're, you know, you're. You're, you're growing this family. You've got this business. I want to share with you an idea that I, that's come across to me that I think is genius. So there's a guy called Garrett Gunderson who wrote, co-wrote a book called The, uh, the Five-Day Weekend. But anyway, I've, I've listened to a lot of his talks, a lot of his podcasts, et cetera. And he, one of his buddies designed a, essentially a program so their kids don't grow up to be jerks. Um, so one of the things that he does when they hit 13, they for 30 days, they go to a third world country and work in that third world country. So this year he was supposed to do it with one of his sons. Obviously it got delayed, but they were going to go to, I think, Cambodia and like go work in rice fields for a month. And obviously like hang out with the local population, et cetera, but like to teach them like, hey, the world's different than what you realize. And the second thing is when each of his kids turn, I think either 15 or 16, they have to start a business and he will fund that business. He's 99% owner. They're 1% owner. Uh, he funds the business, he coaches them, he does all this other stuff. I think one of his kids did like 700,000 of revenue one year, whatever it is, like something ridiculous. Um, and they grow that business all the way through until they're done with college. And then when they're done with college, 
they have to sell the business and the only, and they have to buy out him. And the only way they can do that is they have to sell the business and donate all of the, uh, all of the sale proceeds to charity and give it all away and start over from scratch. And his goal with teaching that is I don't want you to start a business because I give you a bunch of money. I don't want you to start a business because I'm over here taking all the risk and I'm teaching. I want to teach you how to do these things. And then I'm going to force you to lose all of it and give it away. And now you get to start over on your own with experience rather than just money. What do you think about that? It's an interesting idea. I think it's Um, fascinating. I think it's fascinating. I think, I think traveling the world, especially, and I wish we had a better term for it, but especially kind of the third world, um, it gives you an appreciation for the quality of life that we have available to us. And that's, I think, a really important lesson for a lot of people who, you know, they may rail against taxation and the dysfunction of our government, but, um, you know, comparatively, and it's very difficult that perspective, right? Because we talk about the 1% here, which is the equivalent of like the top decile of the world. Yeah. It's hard to have an appreciation for that unless you've experienced it or you're someone close to you has. Um, but that's what my business partner takes his kids to India all the time. Which that's one hell of a like flight plus trip. And they travel extensively in country. He actually... Um, he adopted a little girl two years ago now. Yeah, it was two Christmases ago. Um, no, it was one year ago. And um, I mean, the stories are just unbelievable. The, the How many t- people he had to bribe, mm-hmm. um, just straight cash payments to these people. Um, you know, I'm not saying that America doesn't have its issues, but on a comparative basis, I mean, look at the part of the world you grew up in or your family is from just generations of brutal conflict, political infighting, ethno cleansing, just some of the darkest chapters you could imagine. Um, It's, yeah, I mean, I think ideas like that are powerful. I'm not sure they work for every family or for every individual, but um, having a plan like that, I think is admirable. Yeah, I I think it's obviously not everybody, like you said, can afford or has the capacity to do it. But that type of thinking to me is fascinating. Like just outside the box, how can you create more opportunity for your kid to think, you know, for, from, we don't have kids yet. Hopefully God willing, we will. But my entire objective is once we have kids to help them understand that not everybody looks, thinks, speaks, or acts like you. And that's okay because the world is an incredibly beautiful place. And seeing, like, I love going and exploring just different cultures. Like when I go travel, I don't want to go. I don't want to go to the place where all the tourists are going. I want to go to the random little village that, that the locals go to. And I want to see what people actually live like and how they act and how they celebrate and how they cry and how, you know, all those different things, because I think it gives you, I think it gives you a bigger appreciation for the human experience. And once you can appreciate the human experience, you can also have sympathy and empathy towards the human experience. Yeah. And, th- and that's the key, right? I think it's that empathetic approach to trying to not solve all these issues, but at least understand where people are coming from on a deeper level. 
and travel's part of that. Communicating is part of that. Reading and writing, obviously, conversations like this are part of that. But um, that I think it's we we share similar goals for our kids. Um, they're going to have immense privilege and access to opportunities that others don't by virtue of their family and how they look and how they speak and their educational opportunities. And I can only do so much, but if I can ensure that they are not total jerks. Step number one. <laughs> that's a pretty big win in my yeah. opinion. Um, Cause it's hard. And unfortunately we live in a culture that, you know, it's very difficult to deal with the pressure of what we define as success. Yeah, talk talk about that. So, kind of back to the young man deal and and the ego and the success. So, um, we talked about that on the phone a little bit. You know, even tapping into those insecurities of young men. I mean, what do you what do you think? What do you think would help most men just contextualize what success really truly is? So. <laughs> Um, it's a big question and I think this generation is doing a better job of equipping, especially young men with tools and vocabulary to understand their emotional intelligence better, certainly better than, than my generation did. The, the, I think one of the fundamental problems is we have a, a lack of um, guidance towards what balance means in our lives. And we attribute a huge amount of value towards certain material things or financial landmarks. And there's this concept called the hedonic treadmill. Hmm. What's that? Where basically um, it's kind of like drinking or drugs or um, pain once you hit a certain threshold, you become uh, accustomed to that threshold. So if you're a drinker, three beers may have given you a buzz, and then the next day it takes four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So lifestyle is the same thing. And when you talk about lifestyle creep, this is the hedonic treadmill where once you make X amount of dollars and you buy the nicer house, then you want the car because the house... You become immune to it. Even though it's a beautiful house, you live in a mansion, you realize, eh, that's great, but I need to turn the volume up here. So you get a Maserati. Mm -hmm. Then you need a beach house. Then you need a ski house. Then you need the plane because you're being unaffected emotionally by those material things. But the, the problem is when you assign this huge amount of value to those materialistic things, that chattel, you realize that once you attain it, those are some of the most depressing moments of your life mm. because you've been working so hard and sacrificing so much to get that beach house and then you don't like the curtains mm. or you want a better one. And that's a really scary thing. Um, because the goal, I think, from a societal standpoint, especially in the financial services industry, is don't worry about what's happening in your head. Keep reaching for that next part of the hedonic treadmill. Stay on it. Keep making money for the enterprise. 
Because if you sit back and reflect about how sad these things actually make you or how, how little emotional value you've created in them, I think the whole thing would fall apart, honestly. Mm. Mm, that's so true, especially in the financial services industry, especially I think there's something inherently about working in a world that deals with money that leads you down a route of making money, you know, an idol in in the sense, in the truest sense of the world word, um, where it becomes, you know, the goal above all. And maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's not that it should be, it shouldn't be a goal. I think everybody should, everybody is, it's totally fine to strive for money. The question is what, why are you, why are you striving for that money? Is it just so you can keep score or is it to be able to open an orphanage or is it, be you know, what is it? What, what's the, what's the end goal on it? The best way I've heard it described is um, a friend of mine. Her name's Julie Wald. She has a, a company called Namaste and she works with financial services, big hedge funds, big private equity groups. And she, it's a wellness company. And the best way that I've heard, heard it described by her is that money has an energy right? It's like a force in your life. And you can assign characteristics to that energy. It can be negative energy. It can be positive energy. Um, but until you assign something to it, it's just this kind of force in your life that's going to push you to a certain direction. So you need to have some safeguards around it and, and assign an identity to it because otherwise it will, it will go wherever, if you don't have some kind of control mechanism on it. And I like that concept because money is really powerful. And I think it does have an inherent kind of spirit to it. And you can put it to positive work or you can put it to negative work, but you have to assign some kind of value to it or a goal to it. Because I think otherwise, to your point, I completely agree. If it's just about the money and it's just about adding another zero, you will start to see your entire world be kind of assigned to a dollar figure and, and people in your life will no longer be actual people or they'll just be kind of actors in this play about money. And it's very hard to withdraw from that. It, what do you think it is about young men in particular that get into the financial services world where they, I'm talking about guys in their 20s. Like, I don't care if you're starting out as a financial advisor or you go work at Goldman Sachs on Wall Street somewhere as an analyst or whatever. Um, or you start out as, at Marks and Milchap as a broker. What do you think it is about young men in particular that are attracted to those careers and the money trap that they end up in? We have a society and, and a culture that rewards that type of behavior and that type of risk-taking and those industries attract a certain mentality, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, it can be very hard to extract yourself from that mentality and when you want to look at a society's value system and where they assign more value versus others, look at its budget. 
So look at America's budget or look at your household budget. And you can see where you assign value based on what you're spending money on. And when you look at America's budget, it's a lot of financial services. Um, so there's this, there's this push to go there. And I think for a lot of high achieving alpha males, it's the next plan. Next field. conquest. Yeah. It's it's an easy way to make money and you can assign value to how much is in your bank account or how many deals you've done. Um because on, on, on some level they're tapping into this very ancient, you know, warrior hero ethos. And you you hear the sports cliches all the time on on Wall Street, and there's a mm-hmm. reason for it. Yep. Yeah, there is definitely an archetype that. Um, I mean, military is very similar. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you exactly why I got into the financial services world. I didn't. Okay, there's. I don't know, how can I say this nicely? I've never. I I had never had a boss that I even remotely respected. Like. Any any position up to that point in my life, um, pretty much everybody that I worked for, I was like, this person is not somebody I want to emulate. Whether it was incompetence, well, correction, there was one guy. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I, it was a summer job. I worked for him for like two months, so I don't really count that. But whether it was incompetence or whether it was just, just like, dude, stop, stop, you know, grabbing female workers by the ass. Stop, you know, things like that. Like it was just never, uh, it, I just didn't, I didn't want to be like these people. So I said like, I'm just going to go work for myself. Like, yeah, I got management, but they, I, I don't really answer to them. Go sell, go do, go produce, and you can do whatever you want. And I love the challenge and the idea of it. And, and, and I did it. I mean, I, I don't regret my time in that world. Um, I really enjoyed it. And, but I also saw it destroy people. I think one of the eye opening experiences I had was probably around 2015, 2016, when I unplugged myself from the matrix and I stopped looking at the business that I was in at the time, the way everybody wanted me to look at it. And I started looking at it as like, okay, what, but what can this create for like myself and my family? Like, the not having a boss, like the ability to go to Ireland or Belgium or wherever and not have to ask for a day off. Like, how can I create experiences for the people that I love rather than than chasing a sales award or money or whatever it may be? And eventually, I mean, in all honesty to, honesty to myself, it's part of what led me out of the industry because I started looking at it and I was like, you know what? I just don't, I can go create those things in other places as well. Um, and And I don't know, I don't know, how easy it is to unplug yourself from that world once you're super deep in it. And and that's, that's where, you know, lifestyle creep and the hedonic treadmill are very challenging to extract yourself. It's yeah, very I mean, hard. Yeah, if you're making half a million dollars a year doing something you've been doing and you're good at it. Okay. How, like if you leave it, how are you going to replace that half a million? You know, and then you're stuck. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a scary, it's so ironic because like I said, I got into that, into that world because I wanted freedom, 
But if you're not careful, you can have all your freedom taken away by being stuck in that world. Yeah. I mean, there's an old saying, you may have heard it in the financial advisory space, that the saddest guy in town is the CEO who sold this business for $50 million 18 months ago. Oh, that would suck. <laughs> he's the saddest guy in town. Yeah. Right. Because he's law. Yeah. He's got all the money. He has, he has no purpose. Yeah. Oh, man. So, what? I mean, what's your purpose at this point? So, you know, we, we say five years down the road, where, where's Brian at? Like, what are you, what are you striving for in life right now? Obviously you said making sure your kids aren't jerks. So, so working towards that, but what else? Yeah. Um, a couple things. One, um, the reason I, I, I love what I do is I truly believe that the democratization of access to alternatives is going to allow a lot of people to live a healthier, better quality of life. I think taking away all of the ownership from these larger institutional groups and, and giving it to, you know, the mass affluent and eventually the unaccredited population, I think it will help bridge this inequality gap that's existing for, for many of us. And so affording people the opportunity to, to build a portfolio a passive income that can hopefully allow them to pursue what they really want to do professionally or allow them to give experiences to their children or to live a better quality of life. I think it's a meaningful thing for me. And my goal is for everybody that is in my company in three to five years, they come to me and they say, Hey, I'm leaving to start my own thing. And I want your blessing. I hope that happens to every single one of my employees, because if my legacy is that I started 50 or 100 different companies that went on to employ however many people, I mean, that's an awesome thing. I mean, my company has allowed me to have an incredible quality of life, have incredible experiences for my family, and I employ about 15 people. I mean, that's real. That's the real economy. So if that, those are the two things that I want. I think the most is to continue to push towards democratization of access to alternatives, be an educator for people in this world, let them know they don't just have to pour money into the S&P or give Blackstone more cash, that they can go and, and do things through, through a group like me or on their own and they can learn from me. That's fine. That I think is a really powerful thing. Define accredited investor for folks real quick. So it is a status deemed to you by the federal government that if you make over $200,000 a year over the last two years, or I think it's 250000 combined household with your spouse, or if you have a million dollars of net worth absent your primary residence. Don't certain professions fall into it as well? Like CPAs and attorneys, doctors? Yeah, they just, they just reduced the requirements or... Um, diluted them, whatever term you want to use. But yeah, there are certain professional designations that allow you to not have to necessarily have those numbers. A CPA, I think a CFA, um, there was a kind of a host of, of licensures or professions that allow you to do that as well. But essentially, you're deemed a sophisticated investor, which means that you can take risk. And it means you have access to these investment opportunities that otherwise you wouldn't have access to. Um, so for instance, we only work with accredited investors. 
um, which is unfortunate in a lot of ways, but doing the non-accredited thing is a whole, ho- it's a whole different world. And there's a lot of liability and regulatory issues there that we just don't have the capacity to deal with today. Um, but I think part of what I'm trying to talk to people about is you need to educate yourself about this space, even if you never invest in it, even if you never invest with me, because if you're exposed to the stock market or if you have money in a 401k or an IRA or a pension, you're already in the private equity game. You just don't know it. You look at Goldman, JP Morgan, Blackstone, Carlisle, all these huge private equity groups, they're all publicly traded. So you're already in their world and they are starting to get more and more exposure into 401ks, pension plans, endowments, the IRA space. I mean, it's coming. And I think the accredited investor status is going to continue to be lowered to allow more people access. So you at least need to be knowledgeable about what this business is and what it's not. Yeah, it's uh, you're, you're in the game. You're just giving up all the delta. Right. I mean, you know, just because you think that the stock market is highly regulated and um, safe investment. Well, I mean, take a look at how Goldman actually makes money. It's by putting together private equity deals. It's by doing investment banking. And the, the Wall Street is assigning a value to their ability to be good at that business. It's it's not about depositories any longer. So. No. Yeah. I, I wish. Yeah. I, I do want the democratization of access to um, investments j- just across the board. I, th- I think that's going to be I think that's the way the future is is trending. At least I hope it is, because I think that would be a game changer for people. I mean, you and I talked about it post two thousand eight. Individuals being able to buy mortgage notes. Like when I first learned about that, and I started doing the math, I was like, "Holy crap! This is incredible! If you can buy enough of these, this is unbelievable. Or if you can go into a group and buy a portion of one, this is incredible." Um, so no, it's it's this has been an interesting conversation. I haven't. I, I feel like we, I feel like we bounced around in a good way because there wasn't necessarily. I mean, I guess the overarching ethos was, you know, don't be a jerk. Uh, but, you know, what, I guess the the question I want to ask you is the question I always ask people towards the end of a podcast. Um, you know, we go back to 18-year-old Brian, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. I don't know. Where'd you go to school again? <laughs> um, for high school? No, no, no. College. Oh, so I went to Wesleyan University, which is a small liberal arts college in Connecticut. Okay, perfect. So Wesleyan super, University. Super liberal place, yeah. Yeah, Wesleyan University, you're wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, 18 years old. Knowing all that you know about yourself at this point and knowing all that you know in general, what's one piece of advice you give yourself? You should marry that girl that you just met. <laughs> I, I did do that. I married her with a girl I met my first day at Wesleyan. Seriously? Mm-hmm. You guys met we the were, first day? We didn't date until senior year, but yeah. We, wow. uh, we went to college together. So, Look at that. Look at that little love story. You know, we've been married a long time, but no, I mean, I, I think if I was to give myself a, a better piece of actionable advice, because I probably would have married her anyways, um, it, it would have been to be even more open-minded than I was about what's going on in the world around me. Um, I think oftentimes we get so heads down in our business and our lives that these events occur and we think that they don't have an impact on our lives. But oftentimes um, 
it doesn't mean you can control them any more than you otherwise could, but understanding them and comprehending all of these issues occurring. Like, I feel like I'm just now opening my eyes to, and this is going to spur a whole different conversation, but just now opening my eyes to the plight of, you know, generationally poor people in America and the systems in place to prevent them from ever, you know, gaining affluence. I just don't think I appreciated it. You know, you read about it, but you don't see it. You don't live it. Um, that's been one of the things that I've been really struggling with is, you know, what could I do as an individual to impact change and to affect systems change, right? That power dynamics, which is we were talking about before, right? The concept of these political parties, these concepts of the radicalization of the polarization of their platforms. I mean, there are people out there working to try to shift those power dynamics and to, to affect change. And I've been talking to a lot of my colleagues and college alum network who are in that space. And it's really fascinating to hear how they think about incremental glacial change. But at some point you hit a tipping point. It's super interesting to think about, right? Like you can take any issue, gay marriage, legalization of marijuana, um, uh, any number of other things, but like for generations, it was considered just untouchable. And then seemingly overnight, the flip switches and it's considered inevitable. But all this work and effort went into it on the front end over time to create that sense of inevitability. And then we move on to the next thing. And so I've been thinking a lot about that. Mm -hmm. I don't think answered your question, but. No, I think that's a fascinating mental experiment. Um, you know, we're, we're already at an hour and 15 minutes, which is sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. No, I loved it. Um, you know, so we're, we're running up on time on that, but we might want to do a part two at some point. I think, I think, I was happy that the conversation didn't just go down one train track because I think we just explored a lot of, maybe we explored it at a shallow, at the shallow end of the pool, you know, on, on all these different topics, but we at least got to a bunch of topics that hopefully get people thinking um, lots of different ways. Because one of the things that I love about this podcast and doing it is I'm always open to having my mind changed on things, on any topic. I'm more than willing to entertain pretty much anything um, because I like having the conversations and I wish in society kind of back to the political polarization of things and catering to the base of each side. The base is not really interested in having conversations on any side. The base is listening, is interested in yelling at you and you listening to what they have to yell at. Um, but I think the same way I started this podcast, I think the overwhelming majority of people are somewhere in the middle and they want to have dialogue and they want to have conversation and they want to, um, and they might even disagree with each other and that's okay. You can disagree with each other and still exchange ideas because the exchange of ideas is how we make progress as society. Um, and that, that's what gets me pumped up about this platform in particular and conversations like these in particular. Well, you're doing good work. We can add on a, on a light note. I've got a question for you. What's up? Most famous or modern Serbian athlete. Are you a Vladi Divac guy or a Joker <laughs> guy? 
Uh, I mean, Djokovic is a is a, a a legend in the sense that. But he's that dude is a straight cold psycho sometimes, though. Correct. However, Which from I like a, from a uh, from a um, philanthropic standpoint, the man is basically a saint. A lot of stuff that Americans will never hear about ever in a million years. Yeah. Uh, I like Vlade because I've I grew up on Vlade and not just not just him, but like all the former Yugoslavian basketball, like Drajan Petrovic and Pejostiakovic and Tony Kukoc and and all those guys. I love basketball. Um, I think. But I, I would have to give the crown to Novak because he is you're right. He's insane in a lot of ways, um, but he is the best at his craft or arguably the best. And from a philanthropic standpoint and what he does, things that he doesn't have to do, it's, it's really incredible. Even, even I'll give you an example, it's probably something you've never heard of in America. When Croatia was in the, in the World Cup in 2018, um, you know, Novak took a picture with several of the Croatian players right before the game and posted on Instagram and wished them luck. Most Serbian people were rooting for Croatia in that World Cup, but from a political landscape, I mean, the, some of the commentary made were just terrible. But the simple fact that he posted that picture is incredibly powerful and important to me because those people are the same people, whether the politicians want to admit it or not. Um, and movements like that and pictures like that and statements like that do the job of mending between the actual human beings that the politicians refuse to actually do. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really appreciate things like that. Well, I'm a, I'm a huge hockey fan mm. and I love European players. So, you know, Serbia doesn't have a strong program, but some of those other former States do. And, um, that's how I get a lot of my pop culture is still from, Czech Republic, Slovenia, Slovakia, some of those players. So Yager wearing 68, I still think is like the coolest thing ever. So. See, I, I uh, when it comes to hockey, I know just enough. So my, my then girlfriend, now wife, took me to a Preds game, and that was my first ever hockey game. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, if this is like a 6, I'll come back for another game. And it was like a 30. It was like the most incredible sporting event ever. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew Puck. Like two nets, we'll figure this out. I literally went and bought, uh, it was like NHL Hockey 2015 on the Xbox the next day and started right. playing just so I could learn <laughs> learn the rules. Well, when this whole nonsense passes, I'll take you to a game. We'll go and drink beer and we'll, okay. fix, we'll fix the world together. There you go. We'll uh, we'll go to the, what's it called the Pinnacle Plaza or whatever and and, and, and drink some drink some beers. But uh, before I let you go, how can people get a hold of you? Um, anything you want to plug, etc. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm super active on LinkedIn, so if, if you want to, you know, reach out to me uh, directly, look up Brian C. Adams Excelsior Capital, or you can go to the website excelsiorgp.com. You can sign up for our newsletter if you want to learn more about the investment side, what we're doing. Um, plug in your info and someone will be in touch, but thank you for having me on. This is, uh, this is a fun conversation. Awesome. Awesome. And I'll have all that in the description in the show notes, et cetera. Uh, again, for everybody listening, manhoodpod.com info at mmcip.co. If you've got 
people you want us to interview. If you want to be interviewed, if you just want to reach out, if you got constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain. You got to offer a solution. Um, <laughs> that's, my children, the same thing. Yep. Don't, don't come to me with a problem unless you have three options on solution side. Well, and uh, I love it. And uh, yeah, hope you guys have a, have a good day and we'll talk to you soon.